Hello, and welcome to Techno Sapiens, a future tense series of podcasts from Slate, New America, and Arizona State University. In this series, as the name suggests, we'll examine how technology, now and in the future, will impact us as a species and how we relate to each other. Each podcast is a debate about whether machines will solve our problems or make them worse. I'm Christine Rosen, a Future Tense Fellow and Senior Editor of The New Atlantis, and I'll be the skeptical voice on tech. I'm joined by Marvin Amore, a Future Tense Fellow and First Amendment lawyer who is, can I call you a true believer in technology? You can. If I had a Bitcoin for every time someone called me a true believer, <laughs> I'd have a lot of dollars, whatever the exchange rate is for dollars You'd today. be a rich man. Well, today we're joined by Chris Calabrese, Legislative Counsel of the American Civil Liberties Union, to discuss big data. Hi, Chris. Hey, how you doing? The collection and categorization of information about our online behavior in the form of big data presents a unique opportunity. Like neuroscience before it, big data is touted as the solution to all of our financial, educational, social, and political problems. But its use also raises significant ethical challenges. Will this wealth of online information remake our lives for the better or for the worse? And as Facebook and Google and other tech companies hoover up all of our information, I want to ask you, Chris, if we have nothing to hide, do we have nothing to fear? Everybody has something to hide. Even if you haven't done anything wrong, you still don't want your salary posted on the internet. You don't want people to be watching you and you're walking around the house doing whatever it is you're doing. I watched a focus group a while back, and there was an African-American gentleman in Atlanta who, who put it much better than I ever could. And he said, you know, just because I don't, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong doesn't mean I want them watching what I'm doing in the bathroom. That's my business. And I think a lot of that is true for big data generally. It's your business. And then we can talk about the fact that a lot of times, even if you're not doing something wrong, they can still use that information in ways you might not be too happy about. But I think we should start from the premise of, you know, I should be able to decide when people learn all these things about me, not someone else deciding and deciding what to do about it. So, so Chris, I, I should say that the dynamic here is that Christine rode to the studio in a chariot. <laughs> and I, and I, I have know, my quilt pen right took, here. Yeah, and I took public transportation or, you know, use, use modern amenities. You rode in the spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> in the spaceship. Uh, and, uh, and I think you know, since we've, we've actually done work together, that I advise companies like Google and, and others, uh, both in opposition to government surveillance and sometimes uh, in favor of, you know, big data, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, and w what you said was, you know, watching a specific person in a bathroom. Mm -hmm. But that's not what big data usually is. What we're talking about is, Knowing generally that during the halftime of the Super Bowl, a large number of people will be using the toilet right. or certain, <laughs> other certain times and then perhaps planning sewage around that. So, so if you're talking about big data versus small data, you know, where do you sort of draw the line? What, what do you think is too creepy? What do you think is kind of like useful sewage planning? Well, you know, it, that's a great point. I mean, I, I don't think we want the conversation to be, do we want to improve climate change or any other, you know, huge, important societal issue versus should people have privacy? Like, that can't be the way this discussion happens. I think we need to acknowledge that data can be very useful. It can also be very harmful. So to take your specific example, here's a big data thing that I would find very troubling. You know, I'm a consumer, and I'm on a, a, a list, a marketing list, say, one that says, this is a consumer that's gullible. You know, he will buy anything you put in front of him. And this is not a hypothetical example. These lists exist. They are sold oftentimes as sucker lists or people who are gullible. 
Well, you can imagine how you can use that to take advantage of somebody, to call them up and tell them you've got a great offer for them. You're, or even worse, take advantage of somebody on a list of early onset Alzheimer's. Like you can use this big, these big data to harm people. And so we, we need to begin by boxing out some of these very unpleasant categories. And it's, and it's harder to do than you think because, you know, there are everybody, nobody wants a list of alcoholics, right? Except maybe unless you're AA and you want to help somebody who's an alcoholic. So it's tricky in that regard, but big data clearly has a big downside as well as a big upside. Well, and there's, let's think of it a little bit about um, beyond the bathroom habits, this predictive capacity <laughs> for big data, which I think is both what's very exciting and also very um, scary for some people. Um, let's think about DNA databases, right? Years ago, when the government got in the business and states got in the business of setting up DNA databases, there were a lot of reassurances about we're only using it for this purpose. We won't expand beyond this purpose. If you look at the history of those databases, they've all expanded beyond their initial mission. Right. So when it comes to the the predictive issue, I mean, let's think, for example, um, you know, why if if, if if an algorithm can predict uh, how you're likely to vote, why bother with voting, right? I mean, there, there's, there is, again, this is the sort of futuristic scenario, but isn't there a possibility, or what do you see, Chris, as the most dangerous possibilities for the predictive aspects of big data, especially in the hands of can, government? Can, can we have the positive side of big data first? Before we go well, we to got the, the toilets side? flushing on time. <laughs> we got the toilets we flushing. I mean, Chris, Chris could give the positive side as well as anyone. I mean, Chris right. is in these debates. He hears both sides. He's, uh, he's definitely a man of balance. Oh. Well, I mean, but... <laughs> But you know, he, he would disagree with you, Marvin. But thank you, <laughs> thank you. But um, you know, when you think of in our daily lives, uh, things that I find interesting when it comes to big data, Chris, and I don't mm-hmm. know if you ever read the OK Cupid blog. So OK, you just revealed a great deal yeah. about yourself. Oh my, the OK Cupid blog is an amazing <laughs> I'm check resource uh, to understand relationships in America. What they've done is they've taken all the data they have on OK Cupid, a dating site, and then they've sliced it and diced it, and they present interesting information. And so you can, on a first date, ask a question that might reveal if you and this person would last a long time. And, you know, without data, you might not know what, what questions to ask. You'd be fumbling around and have a bad date. But with <laughs> the data of OkCupid, you can say, hey, don't you want to just chuck it all and go on a long vacation? Something like that. And then that one question will help reveal if, you know, the date will go well for a long time. Well, that sort of and, you guys and, are fr- you guys have done quite a lot of framing there. So let me see if I can. <laughs> you guys, me guys, me, you guys, but you Marvin, but you know, you both sort of put your your little stamps on it, and I like uh-huh. that. I appreciated it. Um, okay, Cupid, uh-huh. it's wonderful that the the data is used to empower someone, right? I, it, it's something that allows me to be better, more successful, without you know, sort of without coming at the expense of someone else, right? I'm not learning, using big data to learn something about my date so I can manipulate them, for example. I'm not, in a sense, essence, spying on them. I'm using broader inferences that are drawn from the data. That, I think, is important and interesting. What's potentially difficult or a dark side, right? I'm the Chicago police, and I'm creating a heat list, which is, and this is not hypothetical, this is happening, of 400 people who are the most likely to be involved in a violent crime. This is based on a wide variety of analytics, not necessarily something like they've been convicted of a violent crime, right? And those people are subject to extra scrutiny by the police. They may be visited and told, we're keeping an eye on you. So my prediction about your future behavior results in extra scrutiny from the police. I think that's something we'd all go, or at least most of us would say, ah, it's not something I welcome. I certainly don't want to be on the list. 
You don't want to be on the list either, Mark. I don't want to be on the list. I'm on probably more lists. Than, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm on fewer lists than you're you, not, Chris, I was going to say, you're not an ACLU lawyer. Let I me, got more lists Let me you. ask a technical question. But I want to ask a question about the, you know, sort of learning about other people to manipulate right. behavior. And so there's a, a company in Washington, D.C. called O-Power. Do you know this company? I don't know this company. Oh, so this company is oh my, is an, it's a kind of an amazing success story. Barack Obama visited them several times, and they do something which a lot of other which people just hadn't been able to figure out before, which was how do you get people to use less electricity? There are all these incentives in different states have to get you know electricity companies to reduce electricity use of their users. Mm-hmm. And what they used to do is like send a refrigerator out to you and say, here's a more efficient energy refrigerator. Right. Use it instead. You plug it in in your garage instead of actually plugging it in and throwing away your old refrigerator. Right. They're using twice as much energy and it doesn't work. And so what they did is they sort of slice and dice uh, how much energy is being used in your neighborhood, Chris. Then they send you a bill. Like the bill that you get just has better visual graphics and says, hey, Chris, your neighbors use less electricity than you. And because of that information, you start shutting off the lights, you start like paying attention more. And, and people reduce their electricity use as a result of this. And all they're doing is actually manipulating you using herd mentality, letting you know what your neighbors are doing, right? And it's kind of similar to the idea that, you know, they're manipulating you subconsciously, but right. they're doing it for good. You know, it's interesting. I think you can use data in a lot of ways. Let me use your same example. I've heard, you know, people say, one of the things that would help me in my house is if I knew exactly what was using the most power. So your laptop doesn't need to stay plugged in after it's charged. And maybe it's still pulling power in a way that's unnecessary. Well, that's a use of data that empowers me without necessarily sharing it. So that's one example. I'm not necessarily sure that you're Shame example is a bad one, but let me take it a step further. For many years, police have you have gone and looked at electric utility bills, and they looked for the really high users. And you know what they want to know? Is that a marijuana? marijuana. Yes. Is that a marijuana (laughs) grow house? So, you know, your data is really interesting to lots of people and may be used in ways that you're not really that happy about. Well, let me jump in with a sort of a more technical question, which is we're all talking about big data. We're all assuming that the algorithms that are being used and the analytics that we're relying on to give us this information in the first place are themselves well constructed. I mean, I think someone once asked me, I I call this the snake oil problem. Exactly. So I have young kids and they're like, what do you think? What do you imagine in the future their jobs will be? And I said, I want them to become algorithmic auditors, like a tax auditor, but for algorithms, right? There's going to be this need. We already have some Mm -hmm. of them, but we need to make sure that the human-devised algorithms and the human analysts of this data actually know what they're talking about as well. So what risks do you see or benefits do you see to thinking about those questions? Yes, that is the tremendous. I mean, the first question one has to ask before we ask any of the the things we've been talking about is, does it work? Because if it doesn't work, then the privacy problems are obviously, you know, it's irrelevant if there's privacy problems. You don't put something in place that doesn't work and potentially invade your privacy or does all, all kinds of other bad things. So there's a great example of this in the national security context. All the way back in 2008, you know, so a long time ago, the National Academy of Sciences published a report that said, to paraphrase, basically data mining doesn't work to find terrorists, right? Because there's just, there's too few of them. There's too few examples. There's too many different ways that you can commit terrorism in sharp contrast to something like credit card fraud, where there's tons and tons of examples of it. There's tons and tons of transactions to process. You can really find patterns of credit card fraud. You can use data analytics to do that. It doesn't work in terrorism. Well, 
we look at the big data collection programs the NSA is engaged in, the 215 metadata program that collects everyone's phone records. And we see that in spite of the fact that, you know, the scientists are saying it doesn't work, we're still doing it. And incidentally, two independent reviews, one appointed by the president himself and one by the Independent Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, both unsurprisingly said that 215 phone records program has never actually caught any terrorists or been useful in a terrorism investigation. So that's borne out. But yet we use the snake oil and we buy the snake oil. And that's, I think, the first problem that big data has to confront before it can really be useful is to get the hucksters out and find some standards for what works and what's a, a metric to evaluate it. I think you Marvin, raised... do you, are you going to disagree with the, the oh, accuracy? No, no I didn't oh, think God, you no. were that. <laughs> no, no, yeah. You don't want the hucksters either. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, the difference... Utopian but rational. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the difference between Christine and I is that she wrote in on a chariot. Well, in getting back to the sort of human part of this issue, right. the, pr- the predictions... Oh, we want to talk about human exactly. beings. Exactly, human, human beings, beings, those, those okay. you know, quirky, difficult people. Yes. But, you know, think about it in terms of parole, where right. already predictive algorithms are being used to help assess whether someone el- should be eligible for parole. Human beings, real lives are touched by the use of mm-hmm. this data. So I think that that's actually a really – it's a good warning, if you will, without being entirely dystopian about safeguards that we need to start discussing now because this stuff is already in use. And I do think people get very excited like they do about neuroscience right. that this is going to solve all of our ills mm-hmm. rather than looking at our you know, flawed way of behaving as human beings. So well, what will you leave us with in terms well, of a positive leave... message for Marvin? A positive <laughs> message. Well, well, I actually have uh, – I've – I don't mean to interrupt. Yes. Um, I've got Good, because I was not sure I had a positive message. <laughs> oh, you're not sure you have a positive message. So, I, I, might, mean, I might not. So one of my takeaways was that if the U.S. government is fielding a major league baseball team and they have to go up against the Oakland A's and their data algorithms, mm-hmm. the U.S. government can also use the same algorithms. With, but, but once they're actually enforcing the law as police officers, we should make sure that, that they have the limits that should be imposed on them. My question to you, though, is, I was, kind of, I was trying to be funny. Not sure that worked. You didn't get it. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm with you sort of maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so the difference between law enforcement yeah. and, and fielding a baseball team okay. for the government. Question though, you said that we should go back to the old notion of warrants. Right. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic about that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and since such an important question and since we have you here, right. uh, I'm under the impression that almost no one in Congress agrees with that idea when it comes to national security, even, even Senator Wyden. If I'm not wrong, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's more complicated than that. I think that there are still limitations. There are still the idea that everybody has agreed that spying should be subject to limits. The president has said it when he announced, you know, his various reviews. It, it's not that. So typically, warrants are used more frequently in the domestic context. There's no question. But I don't think we're talking about sort of a question between a free for all. And the warrant protection, what we're talking about is a gradation depends on who you're looking at and what the purpose is for. But right now, what we've seen is collection that is unquestionably unlimited, that bears no relation to any standard, includes millions of innocent people. And that's, I think we all sort of agree, is a place that we can start to rein things in. So if you're an Amazon customer and you're on Google for most of your waking hours, they probably know more about you than you might even know yourself. (laughs) So let's remove the human middleman. Why not let Google's algorithms vote for you the next time you go in the ballot box? I mean, what's wrong with having these predictions um, (laughs) if we don't use them, if we don't make our lives more efficient? Yeah, that that does sound like perhaps a step too far in efficiency, but you know, I don't know. Um, Actually, I do know it's a terrible idea. Um, The reason it's a terrible idea is that there's way too much 
assumption of perfection in these algorithms for the first part. I mean, these are very often rough predictors. So if you think about it in terms of advertising, I'm pretty excited as an advertiser if I'm like 2%, 5%, 20% more likely that you'll buy a product than not. I don't need to know you'll buy a product. I'm just kind of shooting for a better list of people who might be interested. That's clearly not the standard that we're looking for in voting. So I think that we just – we have to be careful not to oversubscribe to the magic of predictions. It's still a very difficult system to do even adequately, never mind perfectly. So I'm going to ask you the hardest question, Chris. What should we do about this? What should the policy response be? What should the social response be? How do we get the benefits of big data without the potential harms that, that come from it? You know, it's always good to think about solutions. It's interesting in this case because we don't really have a good definition of big data. It was ironic when the president convened a commission of to study big data. He had John Podesta at the head of it. John Podesta did a blog post announcing he was going to do this review. The one link in the blog post was on the word big data, and it was to a blog post saying, nobody really knows what big data means. So, you know, it's hard to solve a problem that you can't even get the four corners of. But I will say that there are long-held privacy principles that I don't think are going away. And they deal with limiting what information is collected, giving people the ability to choose whether information about them is collected, limiting how that information is used, whether uses are appropriate or not, whether they're connected to what you connected them for. How long are you keeping that information? And we haven't even talked about things like security for example. But I, I think we can look to the target data breaches, to the myriad data breaches, and say, boy, keeping this information secure is a pretty big deal that we should worry about. We should worry about this if this data is really pollution that's just allowing identity theft and all kinds of other problems if it's not actually being used in an effective manner. So there are a lot of policy solutions that are already out there. The question is figuring out exactly what's happening in the big data space and then, you know, tailoring those solutions to those problems. Well, thank you, Chris. We've been speaking with Chris Calabrese of the American Civil Liberties Union. I'd like to thank Ariel Bogle, Elizabeth Weingarten, and Fuzz Hogan for producing this series. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. With Marvin Amori, I'm Christine Rosen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.